0: to another episode of Guidepost. I'm Kevin Davis, the executive editor of the CRISPR Journal. In a moment, we'll touch base with David Liu, professor of chemistry at Harvard University, a member of the Broad Institute, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and co-founder of multiple genome editing companies, including Editas, Prime Medicine, and Beam Therapeutics. This episode of Guidepost is sponsored by Pegasus Books, publisher of the new book by the CRISPR Journal's executive editor, Kevin Davis. Editing Humanity, the CRISPR Revolution, and the New Era of Genome Editing. The Washington Post calls it lively and enthralling. Davis skillfully weaves together a wealth of detail in a page-turning narrative, says MIT Technology Review. Editing Humanity is available in hardback, digital edition, and audiobook. A paperback edition will be released in May 2021. David Liu joined the Harvard University chemistry faculty in 1999 at the tender age of 26, skipping a postdoctoral fellowship as it seemed somewhat superfluous given his already evident academic and research prowess. Six years later, he was promoted to full professor and appointed an investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Although his diverse research interests include phage-directed evolution and small molecule drug discovery, It is his lab's groundbreaking work in base and prime editing over the past five years or so that has truly excited the CRISPR community. As you may recall, we've been down this road before. Two years ago on Guideposts, we recorded a fun episode featuring two of David's talented postdocs, Alexis Comor and Nicole Gordelli. In 2016, Comor spearheaded the discovery of the first base editing technology, the cytosine or C base editor, Which had the ability to engineer a C to T substitution without cleaving DNA. Eighteen months later, Gordelli developed a complementary adenine base editor, catalyzing an A to G transition. Together with Keith Young and Feng Zhang, Liu co founded Beam Therapeutics. Beam stands for base editing and more to commercially develop base editing. In 2019, his lab published another exciting system called Prime Editing which expands the type of base substitutions and other edits by using an RNA rather than a DNA template. In this episode of Guidepost, recorded via Zoom, David Liu recalls his first foray into genome editing two decades ago now and discusses some of the current progress and exciting preclinical results applying base editing to a range of notable genetic disorders. In Liu's words, this is precision chemistry on the genome so david i really wanted to focus on your work on base editing we may touch on a couple of other subjects but thank you so much for joining human gene therapy for this interview um i'd like to go back to the very beginning uh of your first Interest in genome editing, and I am sure I read that you even dabbled in some work in this space going back maybe twenty years. Um, how wow. <laughs> I know yeah, nothing much you... happened, but I'd love to hear a little bit about that story.
1: Oh, no, sure, you've uh, you've done your homework, or at least you've you've heard the the rumors. Yeah. Uh, so I started my academic career in 1999, and uh, one of the first projects we we started in my lab back when I had just a few grad students uh, as an assistant professor was a project we called the Unifactor 2000 because it sounded futuristic to have 2,000 in the title <laughs> of the project. And the purpose of the Unifactor 2000 project was to develop a universal uh, transcription factor, is at least what inspired the name of the project. And our idea, uh in retrospect naive in a number of ways, was to digitally address DNA um, using triplex formation and uh recruit a piece of RNA or DNA linked to a DNA cutting enzyme, a transcriptional activator, or a transcriptional repressor um, in a sequence programmable manner. And to support the feasibility of the Unifactor 2000, we uh, had, had identified, in retrospect, I think, calling only with a more optimistic eye uh, from the literature, reports that researchers have um, had successfully observed triplex formation, even in cells, uh, and of course, while triplex formation is a well-documented phenomenon, it requires conditions that are mostly mutually exclusive with cells. Um, So that turned out to be the Achilles heel of the project, but uh, we were very excited about about the possibility of simply recruiting different effector domains uh, to sites in the genome in a sequence programmable manner. It's just that a way to do that didn't really exist, uh, at least to our knowledge, in uh, in 1999 and 2000. Yes. So uh, probably around the time the UniFactor 2000 project reached its namesake, we we killed the project. Uh, but, you know, I, I think actually as a, as a chemist and as somebody who's sort of been interested in nucleic acid chemistry since I was a grad student, um, I was influenced by the seminal work of Chemists like Peter Durbin, who, of course, made a, a, a illustrious career around uh, his concept of, of engineering distamycin, small molecule analogs, oligomers, mm-hmm. to bind DNA sequence specifically. Um, and you know, I think that work uh, had a profound influence on the conception of the Unifactor two thousand. Uh, by the simple recognition that it would be very powerful, it would be a very powerful capability to be able to bring uh, functional functionality to DNA in a site specific manner.
0: Mm. I know um, the arrival of Alexis Komor was obviously hugely important in the development of base editing, but to what degree were you really exploring um, genome editing um, as part of your research? interest uh before that obviously the i'm presuming the arrival of fung and conversations with him over a couple of years probably must have triggered some very interesting ideas in your own mind
1: yeah so we um actually first got into genome editing um through uh my good friend and colleague now keith john um he was then a newish professor young professor at MGH, yeah. um, Mass General Hospital at Harvard Medical School. Um, so uh, a student uh, uh, who at least initially was on a MD-PhD track and then converted to a PhD track, uh, Vikram Padanyak. Um, uh, actually, I think Vikram may have stayed on the MD-PhD. Anyhow, uh, not, not so important. But uh, Vikram Patanayak was a Harvard Medical School uh, student who uh, happened to sit next to Keith John at a medical school retreat. Uh-huh. Uh, Vikram was a graduate student in, in my lab and even started in our lab before he formally began his graduate studies as sort of a right. summer summer student. Uh, so he happened to sit next to Keith John, and uh, they had a conversation which resulted in Vikram uh, becoming very interested in the idea of zinc fingers, their programmability, and the extent to which they were really able to bind DNA uh, sequence selectively at designed targets. Yep. So Vikram came back very excited from this dinner with Keith. And um, he proposed to me, I'm actually trying to look up the paper and make sure I uh, get, get all the dates right, uh, he proposed to me that um, that we collaborate with Keith and his lab to uh, apply some of our in vitro selection methods to the profiling of the DNA specificity of active zinc finger nucleases, which remarkably, at the time, were already in clinical trials, uh, Mm. thanks to the seminal work of Sangamo, but had not, as far as we could tell in the literature, been characterized for their DNA cutting specificity in the form of active zinc finger nucleases, mm. uh, as opposed to uh, profiling the zinc fingers themselves for DNA binding specificity but we we were not aware of uh, any report that profiled in a broad unbiased way what the DNA cleavage specificities of zinc finger nucleases were. So uh, this was a great case of, you know as is a real benefit of being in uh, an area of concentrated life sciences interest, like the Boston area, where uh, a graduate student happened to have a conversation with a faculty member who planted a seed that developed into a collaboration that uh, really uh, opened up a new area of research for us. So we uh, completed that that initial project. Uh, The title of the paper was Revealing off-target cleavage specificities of zinc finger nucleases by in vitro selection. Uh, published it in, in um, 2011 yeah. in Nature Methods. And that was the first paper in the genome editing field we ever uh, published. Right. Uh, we then went on to uh, perform similar substrate specificity profiles powered by uh, Darwinian selection. Yeah. Um, on, on Talens, uh, also in collaboration with Key and then on CRISPR-Cas9 in collaboration with Jennifer Doudna's lab, and that was the first time that that we collaborated with uh, Jennifer's lab. Right. Um, so specificity profiling was really the first uh, foray into gene editing uh, for our lab, and then we um, we quickly sort of transitioned to how to improve uh, some of the characteristics of gene editing agents, uh, and as as we started to identify where the bottlenecks were.
0: Right. So it's been about five years since your now seminal first space editing report with Alexis as the first author in Nature. Are you, as you look back on that past, on the last five years, are you surprised just how incredibly fast this technology seems to have taken off?
1: I'm incredibly surprised. If, if you had told me five years ago, <laughs> or if you had asked me, yeah. how long would it take? Uh, if you had asked me in 2016, how long would it take for uh, people to be able to take engineered uh, gene editing macromolecular machines, uh, deliver them into an animal so that they could correct one base pair causing a grievous genetic disease like progeria and rescue the symptoms in the animal. Uh, you know, I probably would have said oh, optimistically, I hope within ten or twenty years uh, yes. that would be possible, because yeah. so much has to go right. Yeah, uh, you have to develop the machine; it has to have an uh, efficiency and a specificity that doesn't uh, cause problems in the animal. Have to figure out how to deliver this machine, uh, which has traditionally been one of the challenges in any kind of protein engineering, applied protein engineering. Uh, and then you know you have to hope that the biology that links the genetics to the disease is rock solid, and of course you will be uh, trying to forge a path for connecting the biology of the corrected allele mm. to the rescue of the disease, which is not a guarantee either. Mm. Um, so it you know it still sounds it still sounds like science fiction uh, <laughs> when when we think about it, and I think it's a testament uh, not only to the hard work and the talents of of people like Alexis, but really to the entire field, there are many, many labs who are using and improving uh, base editors. Adjane, as of earlier this month, uh, uh, says that there's something like 11,000, there's been 11,000 base editing constructs that they've sent out uh, just from our lab, but I'm sure there's quite a few from other labs as well, uh, to three or 4,000 different labs
0: we'll talk about Bajiri and some of the other um, promising preclinical work that's going on in just a minute. But there was another paper from a Japanese group, Akiko Kondo, I believe, which um, uh, from at Kobe University, how, um, and and I confess this has somewhat passed me by, how does their system or technology Differ from or complement yours? And I'm just curious are you, um, are they going and using theirs in a different direction than yours, which is showing great promise in medical applications? Um, how, how do the two kind of compare and contrast? Yeah,
1: so I think uh, they, they had been uh, independently working on uh, ways to mutate genomes uh, using deaminases linked to DNA binding proteins. And uh, several months after our the paper that we published with Alexis, um, they published the paper in, in Science mm-hmm. reporting the fusion of a different uh, deaminase to Cas9. And it has slightly different properties because the deaminase has slightly different enzymologic properties. Uh, uh, I think the, the contributions that we made that may have uh, uh, helped uh, their work included the nicking uh, the uh, the non-edited strand and fusing the UGI, um, which they cited from, from our uh, paper. But uh, of course they may have been thinking along those lines anyway. Uh, but I think the important uh, take home, at least from me uh, of their work, is that A, it established that a totally different lab with different deaminase and a different set of interests. Their, their main focus is agriculture Um, uh, could show that this was a robust approach to making targeted point mutations in the genome. Hmm. And second, I think what happened next in terms of translating the technology into some kind of societal benefit was important. Uh, After I gave actually one of my very first talks on base editing before the paper was published, uh, I was approached by uh, F Prime and Arch to start a company. Uh, around base editing. Uh, Of course, my uh, naive initial answer was, well, I'm already a co-founder of a different gene editing company. It's called Editas. uh, And, you know, they should have the opportunity to, if they want to incorporate base editing into into their company, uh, I think they they should have that opportunity. And I don't determine ultimately who licenses the university's technology anyway, the university does. Anyhow, they said, well, you know, we think base editing should be a separate company. And their argument was that uh, being a different technology, it would require a different effort to optimize and to apply and the targets it would go after uh, the diseases would be different, et cetera. And ultimately I think that was correct. It was a good decision. But another good decision that, uh, that we made early on was to uh, not try to fragment the base editing field into multiple companies that if, if our main interest is to bring uh, base editing technology to benefit patients, uh, we should uh, try to get everybody under the same tent. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so what would become then? Beam Therapeutics uh, reached out to uh, professors Kondo and Nishida, who published mm. uh, that Science paper. Yeah. And uh, and invited them to be to join forces and to be part of the company, mm. and which they did. And. And their own uh, commercialization effort then uh, basically sublicensed uh, their part of base editing to Beam for human therapeutics, while keeping uh, their uh, uh, their own uh, ability to develop their base editors for agriculture use. Yeah, and I think there was some other exchanges of uh, of of licenses. I, I'm not exactly right. sure what all the business details okay. were, but yeah, but I think the uh, the important point is it didn't become three or four different companies right. uh, that were all spending enormous time and resources right. uh, trying to fight each other. Right. Uh, that's and great. that's been a, been a benefit.
0: That's great. Well, you mentioned progeria. So let's talk a little bit about some of the most promising avenues that we're seeing in base editing. And the, the progeria work, of course, has just been published in Nature. That's a work that you've been doing in collaboration with the NIH director, Francis Collins, who's, of course, been studying the genetics of the disease for uh, many years, um, why why is that work so exciting? And uh, how? What are the prospects for maybe translating this work, which is currently in in vitro and in mouse models, into real human patients?
1: Right. So the the project was really interesting and had a surprising outcome for several reasons. Um, first, you know, among all the various uh, gene editing therapeutics efforts that we're doing. Uh, in our lab or in collaboration with other labs, uh, you know, I would have said at the outset that progeria would be towards the challenging end, maybe sort of um, naively challenging, because it's a systemic disease. It must be addressed, therefore, in vivo. The proximal cause of death is often cardiovascular failure. Um, so you're not going to edit the heart ex vivo and then transplant it, presumably. Uh, and it's a grievous progressive genetic disease uh, for which there's no effective treatment that at least greatly extends lifespan. Um, and you know, it also wasn't even clear what the window of opportunity uh, would be to correct the, the yeah. disease and rescue its symptoms. It could be that once uh, a mouse is born, uh, its fate is sealed, uh, yeah. or it could be there are opportunities to rescue the disease. Anyhow, all of those, those features, systemic, in vivo, progressive, uh, uh, rapidly uh, degenerating disease uh, sort of said that this, this could be a real challenge.
0: But you did it anyway.
1: <laughs> yes, and, and uh, you know I, I really credit uh, the graduate student, Luke Koblen, who led the uh-huh. effort, um, uh-huh. who decided to try our brand new adenine base editor, which we hadn't even published at the time. So this mm-hmm. was in 2017. Uh, the one that Nicole Godelli uh, led yeah. the development of, and uh, he had the the foresight to to try it in uh, patient derived progeria cells, and so you know on a on a lark he uh, made a antivirus that delivered uh, the best version we had at that time of an adenine base editor with a custom PAM because uh, there was no NGG PAM in the right place. Um, used that lentivirus to infect uh, these patient-derived cells and observed really efficient correction, like 90% correction, which was stunning to us at the time. Um, and uh, and the results were encouraging enough that uh, that we started a collaboration with Jonathan Brown, who is uh, at Vanderbilt's and studies, among other things, uh, uh, vascular biology and disease. Uh, and uh, Luke knew Jonathan because Luke was an undergrad in Jay Bradner's lab, mm. where Jonathan Brown was a postdoc. Okay. So again, we benefit from chance occurrences when yeah. people who are interested in the life sciences are highly concentrated, like they are in the Boston area. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, it's tempting to speculate that uh, if Jay Bradner had not uh, gotten stolen by Novartis to become president of NIBR uh that Luke probably would have stayed in his lab and the progeria study may never have happened. <laughs> uh in fact, I think the odds are very very likely that that would have been the case. Uh, Sliding doors. <laughs> yeah, Luke was uh flourishing in Jay's lab as an undergraduate. Uh, who yeah. would want to leave Jay Bradner's lab? Yeah. And so yeah. you know, I think the expectation once he was admitted in graduate school was that he uh he was going to join Jay's lab. And I remember even looking at Luke's file and saying, "Well, it's, looks like a fantastic student, but I'm sure he's just going to stay in Jay's lab because everyone thinks he's great and Jay has a great lab. So, uh, so when he asked it suddenly, unexpectedly to rotate in our lab, yeah. uh, he explained that it was because of Jay's recent announcement that he was leaving. Right. Um, anyhow, so, uh, so we injected this, uh, this pilot mouse, the single pilot mouse with, uh, with, uh, no associated virus in- encoding this base editor. Uh, you know, it's the kind of swing for the fences, pilot experiment that, you know, is arguably a little bit uh, uh, naively optimistic because uh, it's a real stretch to go from human patient-derived fibroblasts to a mouse. And the AAV system we used to deliver the base editor into the mouse hadn't even been published at that time. Uh, but they injected the single mouse, and uh, we didn't have at the time the the uh, sophistication or the the manpower to do extensive uh, vascular pathology analysis or lifespan analysis, et cetera. Uh, we simply uh, took some of the basic organs, like the liver and the heart, and sequenced them. Mm. And again, we were surprised to find sort of twenty to sixty percent editing in most of the organs that we sequenced. Mm and when we did a at the dna level and then when we did a uh, an rna analysis we saw that the amount of the toxic progerin rna that results from mis splicing caused by this single silent point mutation had gone down quite a bit and the amount of progerin protein in the western blot has had also gone down mm-hmm. in favor of the healthy normally spliced laminate protein mm-hmm. so that was uh, a remarkable uh, outcome And we got that data shortly before I was invited to give a talk at the NIH. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it also just happened that my last one-on-one meeting before my seminar was with Francis Collins. Yeah. I think my seminar was around 4 or 5 in the the afternoon. And my last meeting was with Francis. And I mentioned to Francis that we were working on progeria because I knew that he was one of the world's experts. And he had actually created the animal model that we were correcting. Uh, with our one pilot mouse. And so I I told him, uh, you know, we have this exciting early data. It's very preliminary. It's just one animal. I wasn't planning to present it or anything. And uh-huh. and he said, you should definitely present it. <laughs> <laughs> so I I, uh, I actually went to the men's room uh, and put my slides in and, and was furiously texting Luke and Jonathan to say, is it okay if I add this data yeah. into the NIH talk, uh, yeah. even though I wasn't planning to. And and they both said, yeah, that would be great because yeah. you know Francis is going to be there, I guess. And so I uh, presented the data and then right after the talk, uh, Francis offered to collaborate and explained that he had this amazing colony of of those uh, progeria mice that each have two copies of the human mutated mm. Lamin gene mm. in them. And the fact that they had the human gene uh, really makes it more therapeutically relevant because in principle the exact same composition of matter a- av9 targeting the human progerin gene that we use to treat these mice could be used uh in a in a human patient
0: mm. how do you think this will trans- well so how will that the results in mice have been fabulous and people can read about them in your nature article how what are the pros- realistic prospects i'm sure you've been talking about this with your collaborators and clinical colleagues how does this potentially look for potentially trying this in human patients? Right.
1: So we've decided to take two approaches. Um, one approach is a recognition that while there are uh, some treatments, including a recently approved, uh, FDA approved small molecule called lonafarnib, which works by inhibiting protein uh, progerin's toxicity is linked to the fact that it's permanently farnesylated. So that small molecule, uh, offers patients some benefits, both quality of life and lifespan, we think. Uh, but we recognize that, uh, at least in animals, there has been no treatment, including Lanafarnib, that seems to show the kind of lifespan extension and, and general animal vitality rescue that we observed from directly correcting the root cause of the mutation with a base editor. So Leslie Gordon uh, from the Progeria Research Foundation, who... who uh, you know, it was really our voice of uh, progeria family, um, uh, I think made some really good points that we should take two approaches. We should advance the current treatment pretty much in its current form and and do the remaining uh, uh, talks and biodistribution distribution studies uh, to pave the way for a potential clinical trial of pretty much exactly what we reported in nature. Yeah. Um, But in the meantime, it's been a couple of years, few years since we started the study. Mm -hmm. And uh, in those few years, uh, base editing has come a long way and even AAV technology has come a fair way. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to redo the study with the latest uh, AAV, with the latest base editor technologies, and to now set up the the animal studies uh, the second time to answer some additional questions, including instead of treating at P3 and P14, uh, so postnatal day three or day 14 of the mouse, which in in mouse maturation corresponds roughly to one year or five years of age in in a human, but not necessarily in terms of disease progression. Uh, So so the question of whether we can treat older older animals, including animals that already have uh, pretty serious symptoms of the disease uh, is an important question we'd like to answer. Um, uh, and of course, uh, getting the dose, uh, as low as possible, uh, which, uh, may benefit from the fact that we have base editors that are literally a thousand times more active than the ones yeah. we used when we, uh, uh, started that study. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're hoping to optimize dosing base editor form, right. uh, AAV form and the timing of the dose to get a, a deeper understanding of. Uh, what kind of patients might benefit right. and how to uh, offer them the highest ratio of potential benefit to potential risk.
0: Very good. You've also recently published on LCA, Leber's congenital amaurosis. This is a very popular and it's a series of conditions with m- right. many different genes, but quite a popular subject for gene therapy and gene and traditional CRISPR genome editing as well. What 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 sets your project apart? Are you looking at a different type of the disease or just hoping that your base editing platform can maybe do things with greater specificity or precision than the right. other methods?
1: Yeah, so, so this was a, a collaboration uh, with Susie Sa, uh, led by Susie Sa um, and uh, Christoph uh, Paul's, uh, Zwicky. <laughs> Uh, whose last name I can never pronounce, but it's P-A-L-C-Z-E-W-S-K-I. Okay. Um, so uh, uh, that collaborative work, which was really led by them, uh, uh, we helped design the, the, the editors and the editing strategy, but they really did the, the animal work and assayed for uh, uh, rescue of the disease. <clears throat> uh, uses uh, uh, base editors to uh More in a more deterministic uh, way, make changes that uh, should rescue some of the mutations. As you point out, there's a whole class of mutations. It's like many genetic diseases, actually like most genetic diseases, it's not just one mutation. Uh, And uh, some of those mutations you might expect simply disrupting the allele could offer patients benefits or disrupting a splice site, for example. Uh, Others you may want to directly correct Uh, uh, the allele. Um, But uh, that was also a a nice case showing that, uh, you know, even moderate levels of editing can show substantial rescue. And and I think that relationship between the extent of editing and the amount of rescue of a a disease phenotype uh, is one of the most interesting. And frankly, the most uh one of the most compelling reasons to be optimistic about the use of gene editing to treat genetic disease that over and over again whether it's sickle cell anemia or genetic blindness or progeria or many other diseases uh, researchers have observed pretty healthy levels of disease rescue from even what the editing field now would call moderate or modest levels of of editing you know, sometimes twenty or thirty percent editing can lead to uh, virtually a hundred percent rescue of certain key disease symptoms, hmm. as we observed in the heart at six months of age in these progeria mice, where we know we're getting maybe twenty-five percent editing at six months. Hmm. But by a couple of really important measures—vascular uh, smooth muscle nuclei and adventitial fibrosis—the uh, the, the the mice treated once with the base editor, despite the say 25% editing in the aorta showed pretty much wild type like aortas hmm. at six months of age, which was a real wow. stunner.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. you know, it could be that it's really just a consequence of the redundancy that evolved in biology to deal with uh, mistakes, to deal with imperfections. Yes. Uh, that, that you sometimes need just a little bit of of the corrected gene to make a big difference in, in the life of an afflicted animal or prospectively a patient.
0: Right. The other interesting animal model work presented in base editing last year was from Sek Katharison and his team at Verve Therapeutics. I don't know how directly or closely involved you are with that work, but I would love to just hear your your um your your views on on how that's progressing. It's interesting not only because now they're tackling uh, genetic forms of heart disease. But their model, as I understand it, is potentially looking at the potential of base editing to treat a much, I'm, I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but you know where I'm going with this, that it's not just to treat rare Mendelian diseases, but potentially look at the genetic uh, root causes of, or, or, or contributions to a much broader set of complex right. diseases. And I wonder right. if, if uh, you're comfortable with that.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great c- series of questions. Uh... Lots of insights. And, you know, overall, I, so I'm not involved in Verve, although Verve and Beam are co developing uh, Verve space editing therapeutic, which yep. uh, they've announced is their lead, Verve right. has announced is their lead program. Right. Uh, but but uh, I have no uh, relationship with Verve. Uh, right. From my vantage point, though, uh, it's an amazing outcome. They mm-hmm. uh, simply need to knock down PCSK9 but they compared using a Cas9 nuclease to do so versus using a base editor to do so, and they found a better outcome with uh, with the base editor, and they chose to use that uh, to, as their lead program. Uh, and, of course, the really exciting data that they have now shown a few times uh, is that they treat uh, primate, non-human primates, uh, monkeys, with uh, a... Uh, Lipid that delivers a base editor into the liver. It edits quite efficiently uh, the PCSK9 gene, uh, knocking it down. Uh, And the result is uh, dramatically improved uh, uh, blood parameters like the amount of uh, serum, LDL, cholesterol, uh, triglycerides. So, uh, you know, the, the second. Part of your question is, I think, really, really interesting. It was, a, in my opinion, kind of brilliant choice of a target because, of course, there's lots of human genetics around PCSK9 that uh, has established a pretty strong relationship between knocking out the disease, uh, knocking out the gene and lowering your risk of cardiovascular disease, uh, and it provides an opportunity to, in my opinion, again, I don't represent Verve at all, yep. to um, uh, choose a patient population that is matched to both the medical need and to societal acceptance of gene editing. And of course, there are open questions, which as the field of clinical-based editing matures, will help guide what the right risk-benefit ratio is. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in other words, you can treat, uh, start out by treating patients with a very high-risk familial and presumably genetic hypercholesteremia, uh, people who have a very high chance, compared to a normal person, of heart attacks or strokes or other uh, cardiovascular problems, uh, much younger than uh, than normal. Mm. Uh, and in that case, you can say, well, even if this is a new experimental therapeutic modality, uh, the potential benefits are worth the unknowns. Right. Right. But if the the unknowns begun, begin to be known and the risks uh, begin to be understood to be reasonably accepted uh, and the technology has only gotten better and better with respect to minimizing off-target and editing and delivering efficiently and editing on-target efficiently, uh, then as you point out, it does raise the possibility that perhaps not just the most uh, uh, endangered uh, subpopulations of, of patients but maybe a broader set of patients could also benefit and for that matter there are other uh, diseases in which there the other conditions in which there are known disease prevention alleles or disease risk alleles which yes. could be uh, corrected or installed with the base edit uh, yeah. Alzheimer's disease of course has APOE4 yeah. which is a yeah. serious risk allele but it also has, the Icelandic amyloid precursor protein, mm. it's alanine 673 to threonine, uh, which confers a strong protective benefit enjoyed by you know, roughly one out of a thousand or fewer Icelandic people and virtually nobody else. Mm. In other words, from the perspective of amyloid precursor protein, amino acid 673, the vast majority of the human population has the disease causing allele. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We have the allele that makes us more prone uh, to Alzheimer's disease. So, uh, you know, it'd be an interesting question if clinical-based editing begins to uh, flourish and, and is viewed as uh, safe and efficacious, whether going after not just uh, disease prevention, not just uh, disease correction alleles, and not just alleles that elevate your disease risk like ApoE4, but yeah. perhaps uh, disease prevention, like the PCSK9 example, right. or the amyloid precursor protein example, and there are others too. The, right. There's a prion protein uh, mutation that lowers your risk of prion disease, for example.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of genetic diseases, there is, and you often talk about this, there are something like 7,000 known Mendelian genetic diseases where we we know uh, at least some of the, the root genetic causes. Um, but in your lab and other labs, and um, you know, in your company, Beam Therapeutics, I, I'm sure with the best in the world, you can only do so many projects. How, how, what what proportion of those genetic diseases is base editing potentially uh, able to help correct, in principle? And do you have thoughts as to how we begin to we as a Field as, as scientists begin to make a bigger dent in potentially tackling not just a few a few individual cases or a couple of dozen, but maybe we're talking I mean ideally hundreds or thousands. Right. Yeah, it's
1: a great question. It's um, really the question that I open all of my talks with, as you probably have yeah. seen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with the big pie chart that says yeah. here are yeah. seventy-five thousand human gene variants associated with genetic disease. What fraction of them are editable by which technologies? Uh, I think the answer to that question depends on what is the editing capability of that technology? So for base editing, it's primarily converting A's to G's, G's to A's, C's to T's, and T's to C's. And then second, uh, what fraction of the mutations that fit that kind of correction, that class of correction are accessible by those editing agents? So at the outset, when Alexis, at the time Alexis published uh, our paper in 2016, the answer was we could only make two kinds of changes, C to T and G to A. And because we could only, we only showed that we could do this with canonical SPCAS9 derived base editors, uh, we could only position the base editing activity window over about 25% of those pathogenic mutations that were in principle correctable by making one of those two changes. Uh, Thanks to the hard work of many labs, including uh, Keith Jones and Ben Kleinstivers and others, uh, uh, also uh, Osama Nariki's lab in Japan, um, a variety of uh, CAS variants have been engineered or evolved that have greatly expanded the flexibility with which, uh, with respect to where you can park a base editor by offering tremendous PAM flexibility. So if you crunch the numbers, the math works out that now say 95% of pathogenic transition mutations can be addressed uh, Mm. with a base editor. And of course, now we have CBEs and ABEs. Mm. So CBEs and ABEs uh, collectively, uh, with that 95% parking uh, filter, 5% parking tax, if you will, uh, collectively can cover something like 25 to 30% of all known pathogenic uh, human gene variants. And that still leaves a huge amount of territory, which as you know, was one of the inspirations behind our development of prime editing, that prime editors can make all 12 kinds of base-to-base changes, as well as small insertions and deletions. And while prime editors are much newer and have gone through far less improvements, uh, uh, rounds of improvement, and there've only been a couple dozen prime editing papers or preprints published, as opposed to several hundred base editor papers at this point. Uh, But uh, the community and, and our lab are working really hard on Uh, expanding the scope of prime editing, the same way that the community expanded the scope of base editing. Yes. Hopefully cover, you know, in principle, a large majority of that enormous pie chart.
0: I remember when you presented the prime editing, I think it was for the first time at Cold Spring Harbor in late 2019, and you literally had 450 scientists on the edge of their seat because you hadn't really divulged any details in the abstract book, which was very sly of you. And then at the end, it was brilliant. You acknowledged your, the first author of the paper, Andrew Anzalone, your MD-PhD student. Um, and then you quipped, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Andrew can do in the second year of his postdoc. <laughs> so I don't know, can you give us an update? Has it been half as productive as the first?
1: So he, uh, he's now at Prime Medicine. So right. he uh, became one of the founding scientists at a company to transform his uh, his remarkable work into, uh, therapeutics. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, about the sly abstract, I I wish it were, uh, uh, some kind of, uh, calculated ploy, but the, the truth is I wasn't sure if the work would be done by the time the abstracts were due. So I submitted a very generic abstract promising only to talk about some new ways to do editing. Uh, and it could have been that project. It could have been some other projects we were working on at the time. Um, and then, uh, right before the, uh, the conference, uh, the, the paper was accepted. Uh, right. it may have been accepted even at the conference. It was, a it, yeah. it was very close timing. Uh, so a- Andrew, who is just one of the most, um, talented and, uh, easy to work with collaborative people I've ever had the pleasure of, of, of mentoring in 22 years, um, Uh, He, he's done a lot. He, (laughs) he uh, has uh, uh, used in his second year, he used and, and uh, developed some improvements of prime editing that we haven't reported yet, but hope to at some point soon. Uh, uh, And, you know, just contributed to a number of projects in ways that are sort of hard to imagine that in fact, uh, you know, I started to notice that when Andrew would, present at group meeting uh, of course now done at, at zoom throughout most of 2020 yeah uh, so I could see exactly how many people were tuned in uh, people would would uh, would come uh, sometimes even guests from outside of the group just to hear him talk about whatever no yeah. topic announced all we know yeah. is Andrew's giving a talk so you know he I think purely by virtue of his talents uh, he he is the most understated, um you know he's the opposite of a salesman yes <laughs> uh, uh purely by virtue of his talents and his highly collaborative nature he uh he grew quite a quite a following in our in our uh group and outside of our group and um yeah and it's just a wonderful it's very scientist. interesting how
0: so many of your um, postdocs and students it seems because you're creating these opportunities directly or indirectly but are now moving to industry versus uh, pursuing academic careers that the the, uh, the excitement of really developing these commercially is is uh, is uh, so immense
1: it, it it's been a it's been a change for sure yeah. uh, and you know the only the only influence I think I can I can say that I offered in that decision is creating a culture where I am happy for students to pursue academia if they wish. I'm happy for them to pursue industry or anything else if they wish. It's really I think my obligation is not to try to clone myself, but to match students with their interests and their talents. Uh, and I think we've we've uh, experienced recently this flurry of uh, new technologies developed by graduate students or postdocs in the lab who, uh, prior to their success, were uh, always on a sort of academic track in their mind. They believed that they would complete their PhD or their postdoc, apply to become an assistant professor somewhere, and then start their academic career. Hmm. And um, uh, Alexis, of course, did that. She's a professor now at UCSD. Uh, Nicole uh, was going to do that, but then ended up being one of the early scientists at Deem, uh, and Andrew was going to do that, but ended up being one of the early scientists at Prime. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think um, this is consistent with the ethos of a younger generation of students where they care deeply about having an impact and seeing their work end up benefiting society in some way more tangible than becoming a publication in a journal Yes. Uh, not that the journals aren't important. People uh, they allow the world to build on your work and to use it. But yeah. Uh, but you know, I really admire that um, there's less. Uh, that generation seems to have less of a sort of uh, follow the the beaten path kind of mindset. That okay, I'm going to check my boxes by publishing uh, some papers and make sure they're impactful papers, and then go through the motions and be a professor. They're much more open-minded about um thinking holistically how can I have uh, the biggest positive impact on the world.
0: I'm very, I'm very pleased that we're actually, <clears throat> we have a paper from beam in review at the moment from Ian Slaymaker and a whole, a whole uh big cast of co-authors, so I'm, I'm yeah. hoping it's the first of many. Final question, David, because I know you've got a lecture. Um, a big year for CRISPR last year, of course, with the award of the Nobel Prize. I'm sure there were some mixed emotions at the Broad, um, but you put out a very nice statement congratulating Jennifer and Emmanuel. I just wonder if you would like to um, say that here and maybe just, just briefly say what you think that, that meant for the field of CRISPR and right. genome editing more broadly.
1: I think everybody in the gene editing fields, uh, in, including everybody at the Broad, uh, was really happy and excited to see the seminal work of uh, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna recognized uh, by the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. You know, prizes, uh, you can't award prizes to everybody who's contributed to a field. Uh, and in a sense, the recognition that uh, their contributions uh, and I think uh, by, by association, the contributions of everybody who have really built that field so quickly into one that's already having impact on, on society yeah. uh, is, is, is just a wonderful, incredibly positive development for the whole fields. Uh, they're you know, their seminal paper, the first to combine gene editing with CRISPR. Uh, was highly influential for many, many researchers, including myself. Yeah, And I think uh, nobody would would argue that they don't deserve uh, yeah. that recognition. I think yeah. one could make a case that lots of people are, are deserving of, of recognition uh, uh, from the foundational CRISPR research that inspired so many researchers to join that field. Uh, but, you know, prizes can only be given to a certain number of people, and I think everybody is is incredibly excited by uh, by that development.
0: Wonderful. David, thank you so much for your time. It's an absolute treat to to talk to you and all the best.